I have another problem. <laughs> what is uh -oh. it? My book is behind me and I oh, can't reach it. I'll get it for you. Just a second. <sighs> is that okay? That's necessary. What do you mean? Is it okay? I mean, anyone I don't, who lives, isn't it anyone cute? who lives. Oh, it's very cute. Anyone who lives with cats in their house okay. knows that the person that has the cat on the lap is unable to move and requires yep. assistance. Complication is nothing compared to disturbing a cat. Hi. 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 This is exciting. <laughs> We've never had a guest before. Oh boy. Are there any okay. guidelines? Are there rules? I don't know. There's no rules. <laughs> There's Bigger no rules. It's a free-for-all. It is. Hello, and welcome to good-looking people in small, clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. You're the piece of string by which I hang suspended over hell itself. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with Brianna. Hello. And as always, we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hi, everybody. And by our friend, Vinny. Hello. And this week, for the first time ever, we have a guest. Uh, my brother, Jonathan, <gasps> is the reason I read Infinite Jest in the first place, uh, and I guess by extension, the reason that any of us uh, have read Infinite Jest. Welcome. <laughs> Hello. So I'm very excited to have you here. And I, before we talk about this chapter or chapters specifically, um, I'd love to hear about uh, how you came to Infinite Jest and David Foster Wallace and kind of what your experience was with the book. Oh, goodness. It's now been a long time since I've read Infinite Jest or any David Foster Wallace uh, other other than the pages that we read for today. It's probably uh, seven years, six years. Mm -hmm. um, what led me to it? I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think I knew other people who were reading Infinite Jest <laughs> um, and and who described it as an interesting work on depression and addiction. Mm. Hmm. Um, and mm. I think that is sort of, I, and, and I'd, I'd probably read, I think that I read brief interviews with hideous men before I read Infinite Jest. Yeah. I don't know. What was my experience with the book when I read it? I got, you know, I, I liked it enough to recommend that you read it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in fact, didn't you give him his copy? Yes. I so I, as I remember oh, it, yes. you recommended that I read it and I said, oh, maybe I'll read that sometime. And, uh, and I also had other friends who had recommended that I read the book and I thought, well, maybe I'll read it sometime. Uh, and then, uh, because I didn't read it ever, you got me a copy for Christmas one year. Um, and I, I remember kind of resenting at first, it felt like a, like a, a reading assignment or something. And, and so I, I, uh, rebelled by not reading it for maybe a year, maybe two, I'm not sure. Um, until eventually picking it up. And so uh, thank you for that. I feel like Infinite Jest isn't necessarily a book that you can recommend to someone lightly, but this this was like uh, exactly the kind of book that I was looking for when I first read it. It's interesting that you remember that totally different than how I remember it. How do you remember it? Ooh. I remember it as I came in the winter that you got the book. 
Oh, that's and right. I remember you coming back to Sioux City with Infinite Jest, and I'm like, does your brother hate you? <laughs> Why did he recommend this? And I was like, well, this seems like a really long and challenging book, so maybe I will volunteer to read it with you. And we started it that summer. That's right. Oh. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, <laughs> your version with rebelling is much more compelling. <laughs> it sounds like something that I would do. Uh, uh, yes, it does. <laughs> so I don't know, uh, Jonathan, do you have anything else that you want to talk about, uh, like about the book more broadly before we get into the specifics of, of these few pages? Of course, avoiding any spoilers <laughs> for those of us mm. who have only right, reached yeah, page 662. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not. I mean, not specifically. Um, maybe things will come up as as we talk about this this chapter. Sure. Yeah. When I told you that we were starting this uh, podcast and asked if there was a section that you wanted to talk about specifically, this was one that you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about why uh, why this section speaks to you or why you find it memorable? I particularly mentioned the um, the mash discussion. Um, yeah, with Marath and Stepley, because I, I mean, I, I think that it's a, it, it, it captured something intriguing about a popular culture and entertainment and addiction and the connection between these mm -hmm. things, and that's that's one thing that that stuck with me reading Infinite Jest. Yeah, so that I mean, that's the first piece that we read in this reading is the story that uh, Steeply tells Marath about uh, his father becoming addicted to. Uh, not just original broadcasts, but also reruns and like tape recordings of the sitcom MASH. And it feels like this is it feels like this motif that keeps returning. There's other stories that are like this. So there is, of course, the entertainment that's like this this method for killing people by showing them like a perfect film that they can't look away from. Uh, but there's also the story mm. of is it Lens the story that Lens tells about his mother who she gets this uh, this cash settlement for this accident on a train, and oh yeah, and and she oh, finds herself yeah, yeah. like increasingly unable to leave the recliner in her living room because she kind of has all her needs catered to her, and she just wastes away. I just had a wondering as I read through it: why is Steeply sharing this with Marat? Why is he? Why is he spilling yeah. his guts about his childhood? Yeah, this is like a deeply, yeah. deeply personal story. And he's talking to somebody who's ostensibly like an enemy spy. Yeah, I just wondered what what made him do this. And Murat mm -hmm. also is very it, like he he keeps saying things that lead you to believe that he he really believes that. He believes, although with some, you know, spy craft skepticism, that, that this is really true and and sincere coming from yeah. Steeply. And that and it's really mm -hmm. it's really the kid steeply talking. You know, it's that it's really it's really coming from some deep sincerity. Right. And he's just seems, so weird. And and Marat seems maybe mm -hmm. kind of uncomfortable with that. He keeps kind of throwing in these little remarks that seem designed to kind of derail the story that Steeply is telling. Mm -hmm. right. Um, right. That sounds yeah. very much like masculine deflection of talking about emotion. It sure does. Yes. It <laughs> sure does. Good point. Point well taken. For me, I feel like, um, I mean, why Steeply is going into this story and everything, I feel like it's just been a very long night 
and they have no mm-hmm. idea how they're getting down or what they're going to be doing <laughs> next. And so right. they're kind of just trying to figure out something to talk about and something to do. And right. it's progressed to this point now. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, Marat sa- actually finally just comes out and says, I would prefer if you would leave before I do this time. And, and mm-hmm. it seems like he's getting particularly restless and kind of wants to leave. Uh, but he right. feels like, like he can't. your watch. Yeah. He can't until Steeply goes. Well, he needs to keep secret how he got up there. Right, exactly. The the stagecraft, the drama of being a wheelchair assassin. (laughs) The other thing is that this whole spilling your guts about your childhood, and you know, I always bring up the abused child, neglected child, crappy childhood of these, of so many of these characters. And Mm -hmm. it it also Mm -hmm. is a recurring thing throughout the book that you're like getting these little vignettes into the crappiness of somebody's childhood and the way the their parents really failed as parents yeah. um, and like what went wrong. And it seems like Murat is implying or maybe steeply one of them. It, it, they're kind of saying that that this is not something that that steeply has really looked carefully at before, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. this and that and that's sort of why once he gets started, he can't stop. It's like a morbid fascination with dissecting what went wrong in his childhood and with his family. Yeah, I kept thinking uh, because Oren is mentioned, you know, from time to time in this chapter too, and I kept thinking that this is kind of what Oren is waiting for, waiting to happen for Hal and Mario, for them mm-hmm. to be able to take a look at what has gone wrong in their family mm-hmm. <laughs> to derail to derail everyone and everything. Yeah. Anyway, it's all weirdly intimate for mm-hmm. Steeply to be sharing this with his opponent. Yeah. Um, so Even if he is a rather admired opponent, I guess. Uh, so, so just a little background about MASH. MASH is a sitcom that ran, I'm not sure what network it ran on, from 1972 to 1983. uh, It's about uh, surgeons and medical personnel at a a field hospital in the Korean War. Yes, Mobile Army Surgery Hospital. Yes. Thus MASH. Yeah, uh, it's based on a Robert Altman film of the same title starring uh, Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland that was uh, hugely successful and kind of launched Altman's career. It's funny, one of the things that Altman is known for is this... you know, scenes with a lot of people all talking at the same time about different things and like overlapping dialogue, uh, which was a, a hallmark of his style. It was a new thing kind of at the time that he was doing it and it posed some serious technical problems. But it's interesting that that seemed to be something that people really liked about the movie. And it's something that the uh, the sitcom tried to emulate. They, they wrote and performed their scenes in the same way with people kind of saying all kinds of different things all at once. So the uh, major Burns is played by the steeply gets the the actor's name wrong. He says it's Maury Linville Maury. plays uh, Larry. It's right? Larry Linville is the actor who played Major Burns. Yeah, long running sitcom. It went into syndication. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when, but it it started. You know, once a show enters syndication, it's available to other networks to broadcast for cheap. Um, and so the reruns were kind of everywhere. I remember Mash reruns like always being on. TV. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. still the case or not, but could I just interject? Yeah, that I am the only one of us currently involved in this conversation watched the live new shows <laughs> for those oh. those however 12, 13 years. Yeah, and did I watch them? Yes, of course I watched them. Everyone watched Mesh. Right, everybody. It's funny because I 
I don't really know how I feel about MASH as a show. I've seen a bunch of it. Just, I think, for the same mm. reasons. Like, it's about, the, it was constantly available. Uh, mm. I think it's, a, a lot of it is really well written. I mean, it, it's, a sit, it's a network sitcom, and so it has weaknesses, and, and a lot of it wasn't very good. But compared to, like, other sitcoms, it The other thing weird about it... Yeah, the other thing odd about it is that for such a popular show, such a long-running show, it always had the sort of anti-establishment, anti-war edge right. to it for being a war a war set in a war setting. Right, and it's, uh, it's set during the Korean so War, but it was... so it's weird in a way. It's in a way it's weird that yeah. it was so popular and that people didn't just say, oh, it's so unpatriotic. It's right. So I don't know. Well, I mean, it, it debuted. It, at, it debuted at, at a time it when at so much when the Vietnam War was still happening, and yeah. But but also at the, during the period of the Vietnam War, that public opinion was really turning against it. So yeah, it it does seem like probably the the right time for the for that show to have kind of come into vogue. I also thought at some point in this part of the chapter, there's a reference to that one of the weird things was that the Korean conflict, that the U.S. was involved actively in this Korean conflict for like two years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the series went on for, what did you say, 12? 11, 11 years, I think. 11. Uh, and so the actors were aging. I mean, mm -hmm. even if you could assume that it's all really compressed, right? That you're seeing what happened in the two years. The truth is that the actors really aged and they, yeah. their hair went gray and yeah. and some of them left the show and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they visibly aged more than two years. Right. <laughs> that made me wonder if MASH is secretly like lost and they're just all in purgatory. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know Maybe. that that's a thing that they ever addressed in the show. I don't, I don't think they ever talked about the timeline. But I feel like the 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 nod and wink to the audience was always like, we know this is actually happening in Vietnam and not in Korea. Yeah. Oh. Um, Can anybody tell me about the Korean stuff? It's a good question. I don't really know um, a lot about it. I was going to yeah, look it up and then it, that didn't happen. I know that um, kind of the reason we don't know a lot about it and we don't really talk about it that much is because it came on the heels of World War II and people were basically really tired of hearing about war. Yeah. So mm. Korea really wasn't that well publicized or written. Yeah, um, I'm, the, I'm quite stupid yeah. about it myself. Yeah, despite the fact that, you know, I mean, in a way, though, I mean, the war is not still going on, but the ramifications of the war are Right, yeah, the divided on. Korea. Right. I haven't seen any of MASH. Yeah. Um, oh, me neither. I, oh. I'm familiar with MASH, because um, like you said, the reruns were everywhere growing up and everything, but I haven't seen any of it. Um, what I know of MASH is that it starred Alan Alda, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that's about it. Um, also, working at the uh, Wikipedia page, uh, it aired on CBS. Okay, yeah, um, it's um, which yeah. is mentioned and yes, by that's 20th right. Century Fox. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it mentions there where it talks about that. It says something about the fourth major network. What what is the fourth major? NBC, network? ABC, CBS, and Fox. Oh, Fox. So Fox appeared around this when time. When did Fox appear? 
around the time of when, Mash or a time around the time of the book writing. Ar- around the time of Mash, I don't I don't know when oh. uh, Fox got into TV broadcasting. Okay. Yeah. Another question yeah. for the Wonder Killer. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so this is all just background to the story to the. To oh, the, okay. To uh, the steeply story. Fox Broadcasting was founded in 1986, so they were producing so TV after, before that, but they weren't a they weren't a broadcasting network until oh, after okay. the show ended. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So this is all background. So they, I feel like we can. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are you asking us to move on? Is well, that what I, I'm hearing I mean, you say? So, so uh, <laughs> Vinny, you mentioned that you hadn't seen Mash. I think the thing that I find unusual about mash um and it's it's a thing that like it seems like some shows are particularly some tv shows just generally are particularly committed to a a type of storytelling that feels really stagey it feels like a stage play um Mm -hmm. and and that to me is what mash feels like it's all this very like character-based monologues and Part of that is budgetary. It's like they had this set that was built for the movie, and so they stayed on it and just shot everything in this camp. Um, right, Minnie. But it also, you know, it, it, there's a lot of, like, internal metaphor. They talk about this uh, specific episode where Hawkeye is sleepwalking and having these terrible dreams about childhood friends, which is an episode I remember seeing. Mm. Uh, but there's this kind of central theme of children and and peril and and connecting that to war and wounded soldiers my sense is that a lot of theatrical like theater playwrights worked writing those scripts um which would not have been Mm -hmm. unusual uh even still today so mash and steeply's dad began so innocently mummykins (laughs) thought it was cute that he scheduled his life around the weekly airing of the new mash Mm mm-hmm episode and isn't that the way everything starts the organism of family (laughs) simply shifted to accommodate Murat says right but yeah it becomes this like obsession that drowns out everything else and he starts keeping these notebooks Mm -hmm. right with all these notes from mash a closet full of them a closet full yeah written in some kind of code right so full that it kind of jams the closet and you have to really work to get it open yeah so how and many years does he maintain these notebooks? Do you, oh, do that's we know a that? Good question. I'm just well, curious to see if oh. we can figure out oh, his well, rate of it, notebooks over it, a year. I don't know, but it, he, <laughs> he kept going after the series ended, right? They talk about him watching the final right. episode. But I, I thought not um, much longer than that. I thought Yeah, that was my after sense the too. last episode. So I think we can assume probably about 10 years, 10 or 11 years. Although, yeah. Okay, so how many notebooks would fill a closet? He didn't keep notebooks at first, though. Hmm. Oh, that's true. So he probably only kept notebooks for five to seven years, you think? I don't know. I think maybe even less, because it's it's, uh, steeply as in college by the time that it gets really bad. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that he's still in college, or he's still, he's he's in ROTC at the culmination of it. Yeah, that... right. That sounds familiar. I thought it was also interesting when Steeply talked about those notebooks. He would, he said like the family so ignored the whole issue, which I guess is true of the creeping disaster of addiction in general. Is that 
it happened so gradually. But they, he talked about how his father started scrawling things in these notebooks and that they were never told that they were secret, but mm-hmm. the notebooks were never left laying around. They were never there. So like you would never pick one up and open it because he never left them around. Right. He clearly, I guess, was shoving them in his closet. <laughs> oh, how many notebooks would fill a closet? Yes. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. Are we I'm talking- I'm imagining them like moleskin notebooks. I yeah. don't know if that's true. Yeah. Are we- Yeah. If we're talking like yeah, pocket-sized notebooks? notebooks filling a closet, like floor to ceiling, a coat closet, that's got to be mm-hmm. probably four feet by four feet. Uh, by eight feet, so we're talking sixteen times eight, a hundred and some, hundred and twenty some cubic feet, maybe more. <laughs> I'm really, notebook. really glad that you're doing math <laughs> for this. I, I don't know how yeah, that. Thank you. I don't know how that translates to number of notebooks, but it's definitely a lot. Like yeah. even if you're just thinking well, about that many cubic feet of reams of paper, for instance. And what was he writing? Do you they, think? I don't Do know. We, they don't even know. Well, he has, a, he just, has a, a, a theory about sort of apocalyptic oh, right. representations that have to do with the um, burns. burns, with major burns. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. And it's unclear exactly. Like, he has a lot of theories about how everything in the world connects to MASH. Um, <laughs> right. And presumably he's writing in some kind of shorthand or like, like. I was thinking about stenography, maybe like which would be another really good connection to the steeply section later mm, mm-hmm. at ETA. Yeah, mm. although steeply is is writing in in a recognized form of shorthand, right? Whereas steeply and his sister can't can't figure out what any of the notebooks say, right? After after making some effort at it. Right. So he must so have like invented his own system. All. Yeah. Or I, was I, it just nothing? It's hard hard Who to knows? say. Who knows? I think Steeply's point is that it doesn't really matter. Like wh- wh- whether mm-hmm. or not the the writing is decipherable, it's all based on these delusions and this obsession. There was also the something about he thought that they had some kind of coded communication with certain viewers about an end to our familiar type of world time. Yeah. And the advent of a whole different order of world time. Yeah. Which subsidized yeah. time. Subsi- that's mm-hmm. what I wondered. If that's, mm-hmm. I wondered if there was a connection to that or whether that's not what he meant. He meant I don't time think, flowing in a different way. I don't think that's what he meant, but it is a weird coincidence. Mm. Yeah. Or not even necessarily a coincidence. It's just another recurrence of this motif. Steeply uses a great word here that I, I really like, a made up word. Uh, Barococo, the old man generated Barococo <laughs> theories about what that had, quote, underline, really happened to the absent characters. Barococo. Mm. That reminded me of, like, calling somebody Cocoa Puffs or Cuckoo Puffs. <laughs> yeah. Cuckoo mm-hmm. for Cocoa Puffs. Cuckoo yeah. for Cocoa Puffs. It reminds me of, like, a combination between Baroque and Rococo. Yeah, yes. like incredibly complex, I assume, is the, the implied meaning there. Yeah. It's so interesting, too. Like, when you relate this downward spiral, which is also the case in many of the reflections on childhoods in this book, is that the recounting of the story takes what? Steeply. An hour? 
I don't know. How long is he telling this? I don't we know. don't know. He, or a couple like hours a long time or half off. the night. Oh, that's yeah, right. The sun yeah. comes up. But well, it was the sun dark. was peeking over the horizon earlier. Yeah. And they had mm-hmm. talked for a good part of the night before he ever launched into this topic. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting when these disastrous childhoods are recounted. The telling of it makes it sound so dramatic and like, how could no one know that this was going to end so badly? But then you think, well, so it was stretched out over at least 11 years, maybe yeah. longer. We don't know how much past the the final episode his father went on, but how gradual in actual time it really is and how mm-hmm. easy it is to make excuses at each step of the at each little tiny right. incremental yeah when something is happening so so slowly it seems right. normal to everyone who would see right. him every day this is something that reminds me a lot of my uh recently deceased grandfather um we talked about the the organism of the family just uh readjusting around steeply seniors life revolving around mash and that was kind of what happened with my grandpa and how he uh isolated himself in his bedroom and it just became normal mm-hmm. like okay so you're just not going to see grandpa when you come and visit um, uh-huh and right that just became something that we adjusted to like, and yeah right because like if you don't challenge it right away at the beginning Mm-hmm. Then it becomes awkward to challenge it later. Right. <laughs> right. Because we've established this pattern. So why would we correct it now? Mm-hmm. It's like when you meet this somebody the on the street. It's like when you meet somebody on the street and they call you by name and you know that, that they should be because you know that they're familiar and that you know them from somewhere, but you can't for the life of you think of their name. And so you oh, talk no. to them for 10 minutes. <laughs> and then it's like too late. Right. Then you can't ask them their name anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same sort of like you lose the you lose the moment when mm-hmm. it would be appropriate to bring something up. Like when the statue still, of limitations. Yeah, right. kind mm-hmm. of. And in Steeply's dad's case, you know, like when he took the TV to work, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. if right if right away somebody had said you can't have a television at work. It's going to affect your job performance and you can't have it. Yeah. <laughs> like there were so many places in this in this downward spiral that things might have been. I mean, I don't know if that he might have just quit his job then. I don't yeah. know. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is so this... many moments where you could potentially intervene, but you don't because you just you just don't think that much about it at the moment. Yeah. It I, also I feels know. very Midwest, though. Uh-huh. Yeah, the avoidance yeah. of conflict yes. in this yes. whole situation feels very yes. midwestern. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Midwestern or transplanted midwestern. So right. my mm-hmm. children, I'm sure have grown up with that because that is a very midwestern thing. <laughs> and it's not it's not it's also not just that it would be like it becomes more and more awkward or or difficult to address. It's also that like the more this continues and and the deeper he goes it's like he's giving himself up further and further to this obsession until there kind of isn't any of him left. It's just the obsession that's left. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. I found it interesting that he that he latched on to the major Burns character as somehow a premonition or hint of evil kind of and disastrous, you know, things happening in the world and all because 
he was a really hateful character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I was <laughs> thinking was. about that too. He's like, he's the villain of the show. And he's not on for the whole run of the series, I don't think. But um, no, but he's like, like because he's, Winchester takes oh, his right. place. Winchester, who point. was who was the voice of, uh, I forget, someone in Beauty and the Beast. Oh, oh really? Yeah, uh, I'll, huh. I'll look that up I'm in a invo- second. I'm invested in this. Yeah, um, <laughs> but Burns is like this kind of snivelly right wing he's he's like a a pro-war nixon guy in he reminds me a little bit of a certain president i know in that Mm. just talking you know as if he knows stuff that he doesn't really know yeah and making light of things that shouldn't be made light of and laughing at people and laughing at others misfortune and but also uh, also like very weird Thought processes. Very officious, though. Like, he's not as much of an overt bully as someone like Trump. It's more like he uses the rules and red tape to kind of make everyone's lives miserable. Miserable. Yeah. Mm. That's, I mean, but rules and red tape were built to make people's lives miserable. (laughs) They don't need any help. (laughs) Uh, David Ogden Steers. He was... Cogsworth. Uh, he was Winchester on oh, MASH, wow. and then he was Cogsworth in Beauty and the Beast. He was uh, a Governor voice, Radcliffe. Yeah, voice of a number in of Pocahontas. people in Disney mm. animated movies. Um, oh, so what do you think? Stitch. So this is not addressed in the story of Steepley's father. So he's he's built this whole conspiracy theory around Larry Linville's character in MASH. Who then leaves and then at some point. He disappears. So it doesn't mention like what did that do then? I guess that's part of the conspiracy, probably. I assume that he disappeared yeah. and the thing that I wanted to mention here was I've been reading back through some Borges short stories. Hmm. And there there's one in particular that really reminded me of kind of the device of the entertainment as this like all-consuming obsession, or like the way that MASH uh, is talked about here. Borges wrote a story that's in Labyrinths, his his collection of short fiction called The Zahir, which is the, uh, about a specific object. There's a specific object called a Zahir that anyone who sees it gradually becomes more and more obsessed with it until they can't think of anything else and they kind of cease to function as a person. And in the story, it's it's narrated from Borges' perspective, and it's a the Zahir is a specific coin with some marks on one side. And I just want to read a paragraph from kind of approaching the end of that story. He says, Before 1948, Julia's destiny will have caught up with me. They will have to feed me and dress me. I shall not know whether it is afternoon or morning. I shall not know who Borges was. To call this prospect terrible is a fallacy, for none of its circumstances will exist for me. One might as well say that an anesthetized man feels terrible pain when they open his cranium. I shall no longer perceive the universe. I shall perceive the Zahir. According to the teaching of the idealists, the words live and dream are rigorously synonymous. From thousands of images I shall pass to one. From a highly complex dream to a dream of utter simplicity, others will dream that I am mad. I shall dream of the Zahir. When all the men on earth think day and night of the Zahir, which will be a dream and which a reality, the earth or the Zahir. Hmm. Which I think if you took out, if you replaced the word Zahir with entertainment, it's kind entertainment. of the, the same device. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it was MASH that uh, 
that became the acted as the entertainment for uh, Steeply's father. Why not something else? I think it goes back to what Oren was saying in our a couple chapters ago about uh, how he missed reruns because it's something about them being constantly available, but also kind of forced upon you in some way. Like it's not that you chose to watch it necessarily. It's just that it was always there. And it seems like maybe that was what first got Steeply's father. So what first got him. So, so into mash. And then he got to the point where he was like taping them and rewatching them. He really went nuts too. I mean, he, first he was focused on the show and then he became fixated on the actors playing characters in the show and mm -hmm. started like trying to write them letters and watching and every movie that they ever one appeared point, in. He's, yes, and looking for <laughs> other things that they appeared in. And remember, he got into sort of he got threatened with legal uh, oh, right. trouble. Right, because, because one of his letters actually sending, made it to the studio. Right, right. Because he was sending it to like some fictional address in Korea. Right. But somebody tried <laughs> helpfully to forward it on to someone who might <laughs> be able to respond to the letter. And then it came across as as, as creepy, which it was. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to the whole larger conspiracy theory. So as steeply as telling all this about his father becoming addicted to mash and getting sucked deeper and deeper and deeper into it. But then he talks about that he died actually of a heart attack, which was a hereditary sort of thing. He had, right. he had a family history of bad heart and that's what took him fairly prematurely. He wasn't that old. No, he was like uh, 60, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it made me wonder if steeply, and then steeply talks about um, the horror and the pull of the entertainment. Mm -hmm. And uh, he mentioned something about, you know, he does wonder sometimes when he's at the, is it a lab or something where they're trying to, yeah, where they're, they're trying, trying to figure yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the guy who died, but, but first had scrawled out some notes about the, about the opening of the entertainment. Right. 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 That was very like his father. Right. But I, then I thought, is he is he really deeply worried that so his father died of a heart attack, which had, there was a family history of that? Is he f afraid that the entertainment will get him like it's inevitable that the entertainment will get him because of his family history of obsession with entertainment? <laughs> I mean, it seems mm. like it's something that he's thinking <laughs> about. Yeah. Like he, he says, I, I sort of look up and find myself tempted. Uh, Right to, to watch the entertainment. I guess he'd have to be afraid. He saw it, he saw it happen to his father, mm -hmm. and though although it wasn't the entertainment itself that killed him in the end, right? We know that it's significantly different. <laughs> yeah. One other interesting detail here that I noticed is that there's a, a sort of mention in passing about a newspaper recycling law that's come into effect. <laughs> The, the New, newspaper re what does he call uh, it he uh, recircling the laws recircling. of recircling of newspapers recircling um but yeah so apparently there's now in in this present world there's uh it's it like legally required that everyone recycle their newspapers 
That doesn't sound wait, right. Wait, recycle or recirculate? Recircle. <laughs> well, 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 he says. I, I mean, he's it's his second language. He's doing his best. Yeah, he's, he's as the yes, foot, he's as trying. the as the end note says. It's pretty obvious what he means. <laughs> I'm just saying. I would believe if there was a law that was like, and now you will read yesterday's news. Yes. <laughs> Everyone, pass your newspapers one house to the to left. The left. <laughs> 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 I'm curious to know what made Jonathan remember this part of the book, Ooh. since he's our guest uh, commentator, our guest mm. talker. Well, I mean, I th I think part of it is so. One interesting feature of what happens to Stepley's father is that he he starts out with this sort of ordinary interest in Mash, and part of what goes wrong is that the interest just keeps expanding and expanding, and. We're sort of like the initial the initial interest doesn't seem pathological at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Lots of people were interested yes. in MASH. Yes. And mm -hmm. the thing that happens is that part of it is just the uh, expansion out of a particular temporally isolated piece of his life. So it's it's instead of just being what, what is it nine o'clock on Thursdays, there start being these additional time slots that the interest expands into. Yeah, right. And it's a little bit hard to say the point at which things go wrong. I mean, you can you can say like you know, <laughs> once he's not leaving the den, it's clear that something has gone wrong. But it, something is it's very hard wrong. To point right. To the mm -hmm. moment where things do go wrong. Mm -hmm. Right, because he was still going to work. Yeah, I think part of it has to do with with what MASH is. I, I think maybe part of why MASH is the object of interest is that MASH is supposed to be something that that doesn't sustain the amount of interpretive work that Stepley's father wants to put in. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> right, it's supposed to just be fun to watch, kind of, and and make some points along yes, the way. Yes, and, and and it doesn't. It, it's not just that it doesn't sustain the level of interpretation. It also doesn't really sustain the repetition of interest. There's something about it that like, it doesn't reward rewatching to the extent. That I was going to say yeah, so, like, right, like you could watch one rerun of an episode, but watching it more and the same episode over and over and over and over is not going to. Not, yeah, it's not, not going like to yield anything new. You're going to be you, right. You're not mm -hmm. going to right. It's because it's not that deep, at least to most of us. Mm -hmm. So why does he do it? Is it a flaw inside his brain? Is it something something inherently insidious in in media? Is it something about the idea of this TV show or movie or whatever it is that you're looking at, or is it something about the way his brain is wired? that leads him to go off the deep end. Why does this happen to Well, him? insofar as the entertainment, I think, is not supposed to be, uh, it's supposed to sort of infect anyone who encounters it. That, that's mm -hmm. part of the right. shtick. So, so, right. so insofar as this is an analogy for the entertainment, it's something about the presentation of the entertainment. And so there's something about whatever it is about Stepley's father that allows him to be led into this uh, mash trap. There's some similar psychological mechanism that, that can be triggered in anyone by the entertainment. Right. Mm -hmm. It has a more universal triggering effect yeah. than in this case, mash. Yeah, so yeah. Mash, it's, it's like, mash is father. kind of like a more uh, restricted case of the effect of the entertainment. Mm -hmm. But it could, that kind of thing could have inspired the development of the entertainment as a more potent, addictive kind of 
thing. Right. The yeah. other difference is that that MASH, the TV show, was not developed to entrap its viewers. Well, this is and another question the that entertainment, I have. The entertainment. Is the entertainment made to entrap? That, that's my question. Do you think that, I mean, we, we don't really have any evidence one way or another, but do you think that James O made the entertainment, made Infinite Jest 4 as a way to entrap and demolish its viewers? Or is that just kind of an accident of the film that he wanted to question. make? If it's like MASH, if there's similarities, then it may have been an accident. Well, I don't know, but though, because MASH, I think, so. I think you could make an argument that a show like MASH is designed to entrap viewers into wanting to watch it more and more and more. Like it's, I guess syndication itself right. kind of does right. that. Yeah. Syndication. I mean, I don't think that you could say that MASH is a psychological weapon or that any TV <laughs> series is <laughs> a psychological weapon. Well, Steeply's dad would Steeply's say Steeply's dad might say that, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it, it also doesn't, I mean, it seems like, like the purpose of a long-running TV show, the, the business model of a long-running TV show requires making people want to watch it all the time. True. So, so there has know. to be something addictive about it or people wouldn't tune in every week. Yeah. Especially for 12 or 11 years. Although I read this really interesting article, you guys. I don't know if now is the time to bring it up or not, but it's from the New York Times. Uh, by a guy named James, oh, I can't say it, Pony, Pony Wozik, Pony Wozik, P-O-N-I-W-O-Z-I-K, uh, just last week, called Donald Trump Lost His Battle, The Culture War Goes On. And part of it is about the cultural politics. He talks about how it used to be that back in the, before the early 70s, a lot of TV sitcoms were rural, had rural settings. Mm. And if you think about it, I know you weren't huh. alive then, but like Green Acres and Mayberry RFD and uh, that a lot of those early comedy shows had rural settings. And then in the early 70s, there was a there was kind of a switch to more urban things, like with All in the Family. And and you think about current TV sitcoms, which I don't know what they are because I don't really watch them. But they most of them, I would say, have urban settings. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that this started to make, the, make this more of a division between the urban and rural cultures. And then back in when, when we all watched just broadcast TV, like... Like Steepley's dad was doing watching MASH and me remembering watching MASH. Everybody had to tune in at the same time right. to see the show. You couldn't even record the show to watch at a later time. You either were there to see it or you missed it. And for the really popular shows, if you missed it, it was, it was bad because you would go to work the next day and people would talk about it. You know, people would hash over what happened or laugh about stuff or mm -hmm. that it was this common point of reference, mm -hmm. um, which kind of reminded me of the, the Boston Public Gardens thing yeah. where people have so many choices about everything, but they really crave this sort of joint attention. Yeah, like, like going the communal experience of communal watching. Right. Because at this point in this world of infinite jest, most entertainment is watched alone at home instead of communally with others. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is kind of getting at the same thing. This, this cultural piece of watching 
having the same things that you watch. And then as there got to be more channels and more choice, then all of a sudden people are picking the things that they want to watch. And so all of a sudden you have the Duck Dynasty folks on the one side, and then you have the, I don't know, what's a more left-wing kind of... Well, yeah, what do, what's it come to liberals watch? Curb your well, enthusiasm, or Curb yeah. your enthusiasm. Yeah. That there's really this divide that has happened because of the choice we have in what we watch. Mm -hmm. That's how you end up with a TV show, reality TV show person becoming president, is because he understands that sort of cultural divide in what we choose to watch. Uh, at one point here in the article, it says, ordinary politics argues those other people don't believe what you believe. But in culture war politics, the argument would be those other people don't love what you love. Mm. Like they don't watch what you watch. It also mentions a bread and circuses distraction in the article. See, I've got a quick uh, vocabulary word real quick. Yeah. Uh, prima facie or prima facie. Uh, prima facie. Um, oh, yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Legal uh, term? Yep. Prima facie. What do you know? That's how it's pronounced. Uh, based on first impression, accepted as correct until proven otherwise. While we're talking vocabulary, yeah. there's another mention here of the yes. Brockenspenst phantom uh, or yes. Brockenspector, which is, we talked about this kind of early in our run. There was a mention of it, but the it's enormous. like this. Like a, like a big shadow. Yeah, like a big shadow when you're uh, when the sun is behind you and it's shining into the mist. Right. Ghosts. Yeah. Ghosts. Mm -hmm. Ghosts. There was also another transpercant. Transpercant. Tra transpercant is transparent transpercent. in French. Oh, see, I can't say it. Piercing or piercing. Oh, piercing. I found mm. a huh. piercing. You know the other thing about that was that was rather touching about the downfall of Steeply's father was his longtime friend and boss who mm -hmm. really tried hard to intervene. Yeah. He really tried hard. And you think, you know, honestly, he would have just fired him. Right. Because <laughs> he couldn't have yeah. been doing his job. Well, they he, was a total he, he even mess. said they, the, his boss kept him on uh, payroll right, even after he stopped coming to, to work. Retirement. Yeah. Right. To try to get him to. But, but he would come and visit him and try to talk the family into getting him help, getting him to talk to somebody. Right. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was rather was rather touching that someone was trying to throw them a lifeline. And even then, so you've got how addiction ruins the life of the addict, mm -hmm. but how it also destroys something in those who care about that person and who live with the family, for instance, are also destroyed in a sense. Like they've lost all perspective. Either they didn't think things were as bad as the boss described them, or they knew that it was really bad and were, in, were just denying it, or they knew it was really bad, but sort of believed or realized that it had gone so far that there was no coming back, or I don't know. Yeah. I also thought that there was a comment uh, when they were talking about how the, the dad no longer left his den. They said... Uh, the final enclosing isolation of obsession. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some lovely language in this section. Another thing that I kind of made note of that feels like a result of Marat's 
imperfect English, and it feels like it's kind of close narration on Marat. We're like listening to his reactions to this story, and he's like, we're watching him watch the sunrise and stuff. Uh, it says, yeah. it sometimes from somewhere blue occurred to Marat that he did not dislike this steeply, which I assume is like a mistranslation of out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. There are also some really lovely descriptions of the sunrise. Yeah. The dawn sun seemed slowly exhaled mm. from the more rounded salience of the mountains of Rincon. My favorite is light ran over everything in a sickening yellow way like gravy. Yeah, there's a lot of really good descriptions. Or here, the sun's heat, a monster heat, and the light, the vague red of a type of fond sentiment. Mm. (laughs) So this chapter concludes with some discussion of the specific effect that the entertainment or this kind of obsession has on people. Steeply's talking about his dad's eyes, like a look in his dad's eyes that he also recognizes okay. in the eyes of the victims of the entertainment, that they seem right. not inanimate, more like the opposite, more as if stuck in some way. Yeah, he really struggles with trying to describe. Yeah, stuck, the, fixed, the look held, in his eyes. Right. He, used, he tries a lot of things. As Empty. in trapped in some sort of middle between two things, pulled apart in different right. directions. Empty of intent is not quite right. It's more stuck in some way, trapped mm-hmm. in some sort of middle between mm-hmm. two things. And he he likes mis, misplaced like, but not lost as a description. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's so David Foster Wallace because he obviously uh, agonizes over his word choices and finds, mm-hmm. you know, really unusual words that I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. That are totally new to me. And so this kind of digging around and trying to find the right word to describe how people look, how the father looked or how the people look when they're watching the entertainment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I put a bracket next to that whole little chunk and said, liminal space, question mark? Mm. Yes. I think that you could describe the, the space that people enter when they watch the entertainment as a liminal space. Define liminal for me. It's like a boundary between two different things. So we have this kind of, it feels in some way like thematically connected, this story that Jeffrey Day tells. This is a frustrating section because uh, we just had, that was just last episode, right? That we had this big altercation with, it results in Gately getting stabbed or shot. He gets shot and like the street fight and the thing that's so frustrating about this is it's it's just like the fallout from the Escaton debacle that we know that right. it's happened and then we don't get to know what the fallout is. Right. And it's after it. The, <laughs> this the, is after. Yeah. The debacle happened on November 11th. Right. Because yeah. everything happens on November 11th. Yeah. Uh, or so it was it's like two midnight. days later and they're yeah. not. They mention the thing and they say that and it, the Ennett House has not been able to really settle itself since then. But that's all we know. Mm-hmm. We don't know what happened to Gately. We don't know what happened to Lens. I mean, it sounded like people were going to die. There was going to yeah. be police activity. There was going to be just, and they they just ignore that. Yeah. So instead, we're just on yeah. the couch with Kate Gompert and Jeffrey Day and uh, Erdetti is there too, watching Mr. Bouncity Bounce on TV yeah. on, on the, on yeah. the console. 
And I mean, what we do know is that Kate Gombert has been pretty quiet and basically in this position since the debacle, right? Yeah. Right. Were they actually, were those people outside? Erdetti was. During this? Yeah, I don't, definitely I don't know about the other two. Bruce, <laughs> oh, Bruce Green is there asleep. Um, and he was there for sure. But what what do we know about what happened? Lentz was murdering animals and he right. killed a dog belonging to some Quebecois people who chased uh, him down and tried to kill him outside of Ennett House. But uh, Gately intervened. They were, there were a bunch of Ennett House it residents outside because the, they had to move their cars. Right. Um, it was during the, the midnight car yeah. movement that has yeah. to happen every single night in Boston, which I have to say, mm-hmm. as an aside, must really make you laugh, having lived <laughs> in the area um, <laughs> and knowing what parking is like there. There's a massive fight. It seems as though a couple of the Quebecois uh, folks were, maybe ki- were, were maybe killed. Uh, uh-huh. They were Possibly. At, at, at the very least, they were very, very seriously injured. And Gately was shot and and sliced with a knife and lost a lot of blood. And also seems seriously injured. Yeah. Uh-huh. But they uh-huh. can't call they don't want to they mm-hmm. don't want to call the police because then he'll things will be bad for him. Right. So so, so his we don't friends know, are protecting him. We don't know where he is and, now at this point. And Joelle and Joelle climbed down the gutter to get out there to and she kind of took charge and yeah. made them haul Don Gately back mm-hmm. into Ennett House. Right. Although how you cover up a mess like this, it seems yeah, unlikely. Yeah, it seems impossible. It was a fiasco. Anyway, that's not what this section is about, though. This section is no. about Jeffrey Day, mm-hmm. who we really have heard almost nothing from. Right. I, I was wondering if we if I should recall more about him than I did. So I, I went mean, back, I guess his name seems familiar. I but went I back and, remember, and, and looked him. for him. He's a relatively new resident. Um, we know that... Don Gately doesn't like him. He rubs Gately the wrong way. Um, uh. But there's not really any particular reason for his dislike. He just doesn't like him. Uh, Jeffrey Day was one of the ones, who, one of the residents who was complaining about cliches earlier in the book. And, and oh, I believe wow. that we know that he was a sociology professor at a community college. Oh. And he came to Ennett House after crashing his car into a store and then getting out and browsing the store until the police came. <laughs> um, and he, he, did, he did detox at some county facility and then wound up at Ennett House. Okay. Okay. But he's telling this story about apparently he played the violin as a child. He was like, I think he says he was like oh, 11. Right. Right. He loved mm. the violin. It was his thing. But he's... He's but practicing. then this thing happened. Yeah, he's this practicing the violin that, one day. That brought the billowing black thing or flapping black thing. He, it's hard for him to settle again on how to describe this thing. Yeah. Right. This dread. Yeah, Kate Gompert uh, immediately seizes onto the idea that it's triangular. And, and he says, no, the thing about it was that it didn't have a shape. But she, she keeps calling it a triangular thing. Mm-hmm. But it emerges like when he's... Ghost. he's <clears throat> yes, it uh, does he's, sound like a ghost. It does. He's, so he's practicing the violin in this yeah. is, this room, and something about the like harmonic vibrational frequencies of his violin and a fan rattling a window yeah. pane like yeah. combine to cause the release it's like of the this thing. Soprano breaking the glass, right, with a hitting right. a certain pitch, right? But instead, mm-hmm. that pitch causes this specter to emerge from his own head, right. Yeah, it's horrifying. It's a really troubling it's story. It's the most horrible mm-hmm. feeling I have ever imagined, much less felt. 
Mm-hmm. There is no possible way death can feel as bad. Well, that yeah. was when he was older because it happened to him again. When he's well, in, in college. Fact, didn't he, but after it happened the first time, didn't he, he redid the whole thing. Yeah, it, it happened right? briefly like he and he ran away and, and then, then he came back and tried it again and it came back again. And this time it stayed, I think he said it stayed around for months. Right. That was brave of him, wasn't it? Or it was. crazy? Mm-hmm. Well, well, and he, Kate Gompert says something about like how it. he, he must blame himself for trying it again. Every few months it would rise inside me after that. Maybe this is kind of like the MASH obsession, right? I mean, surely at some points along the way, uh, Steepley's father, there must have been little nagging things about, oh man, I, I can't not watch it. You know, there have to be moments yeah. as you're becoming addicted to something where you realize that this isn't going to end well for you. Like, mm-hmm. you know it. You're helpless to stop it, perhaps, but you kind of have this moment of knowing. And it's kind of like that. Like, when he first accidentally called this thing up and it was terrible, it was ter- so terrifying that he ran out of the room. Surely he he knew that it wasn't a good thing. And yet he went right back and he recreated it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, helpless to resist. Like, it's yeah. got this, like, it was horrible. And yet, irresistible all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And then he continues the story by talking about him being in college and it coming back. And right. he very nearly throws himself out the window, he says, because he just felt like he couldn't live with this feeling. Uh, but then there's mm-hmm. uh, another person living in his building comes and sits up with him. All night. I, f- I found that very sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it t- he sat up yeah. most of the night. We didn't converse. He didn't try to comfort me. He spoke very little, just sat up with me. We didn't become friends. By graduation, I'd forgot his name and major, but on that night, he seemed to be the piece of string by which I hung suspended over hell itself. That was very sweet. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the lifeline can be grabbed, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was rescued mm-hmm. from that. He was. Yes, he, has, yeah. he obviously it, has it other seems... addiction problems, but he was rescued from that particular thing because of this random person who showed up to be there and to witness Mm -hmm. his yeah and it's it's apparently has not happened since or at least he doesn't mention it happening since although it's entirely possible that it's still inside him it is entirely Mm -hmm. possible it's also entirely possible that it's it living inside of him is what has driven him to whatever addiction it is that he has. That's right. How it made his life collapse in on itself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody wants a billowing black thing, a triangular horror in there, a triangular <laughs> horror. Uh, yeah. In their brain, in their head. Right. Terror. Mm-hmm. Terror. Yeah. Hell. Death. Yeah, death, decay, dissolution, cold, empty, black, malevolent, lonely, voided space. Sounds like depression. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a Sufjan Stevens mm-hmm. song from Carrie and Lowell where he sings about his black shroud that seems to mm. like possess him and force him to do things that he doesn't want to do or think things that he doesn't want to think that feels a lot like this. Mm-hmm. <sighs> it's also interesting that he's sharing this with Kate Gompert, who did such a fine job of describing depression way, way back at the beginning of the book, right? She was mm-hmm. the one in the psych ward, wasn't mm-hmm. she? Was yeah. that Kate Gompert? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who did such a really good job of describing how depression feels. Yeah. And 
and why someone would be driven to suicide mm-hmm. when they're depressed. Mm-hmm. So it's like another description of depression. Right. He describes it in a different way than Kate Gompert did. Right. But it's it's like a so different different angle too. on the same thing. Right. So is it that the feeling is different or is it that the words that you use to describe the feeling are different? I think that probably his experience of the feeling was different or his his way of thinking about and understanding it was different. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. It's Kate Gompert doesn't when she's commenting on it, she doesn't seem to exactly describe it as depression. And it I mean it's it is yeah. very different yeah. from her. In some ways it seems more acute than what she describes mm-hmm. in the in mm-hmm. the passage earlier right. in the book. That's true. And she doesn't hmm. really jump in and say anything about I know what you mean. I know Yeah, that's true. She's listening closely. She's paying attention, she but she's listening. not she's not uh really directly identifying with any of what he's saying. Right. Like she she's not saying I've word. seen that mm-hmm. black ghost myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> she's not Yeah, if anything, she's kind of scoffing. And she's getting the words wrong. She's getting yeah. things wrong when she yeah. talks about the shape of the, like she's trying to understand what he's saying, but it isn't ringing. I guess it maybe the fact that it's a painful thing she can relate to, but maybe it isn't at all what she has experienced. Yeah. Like not at possible. all. Day said, I understand on an intuitive level why people killed themselves. If I had to go for any length of time with that feeling, I'd surely kill myself. Mm-hmm. Time in the shadow of the wing of the thing too big to see rising. Yeah, that is a that's scary. that's a mouthful of a sentence. <laughs> that is a mouthful, and it's really scary. It is, yeah. <laughs> Not something that makes you want to run out and find the room where he grew up and play your violin at just the right pitch to see if you can call this. No, thing thank up. you. It no, thank you. Why do you want that? What? I'm worried no, about I said, you. No, it doesn't make you want that. Oh, okay. No, it definitely yeah. makes you not want that. No. no, I don't want that. I definitely thought you were volunteering. <laughs> like, Norma, don't. <laughs> I think there's a violin around here somewhere. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I can get it out. The bow definitely needs to be repaired. Oh, you don't think I could attain the right pitch? I would hmm. be surprised if any of the hair is still attached to the bow. I wondered if black cats feel the stigma of the dis- this description of this scary black ghost. <laughs> yeah, large dark Whoa. shape billowing, flapping yeah, out of billowing. some backwater of my psyche. That could be Kawana. Yeah, based on his performance this morning, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> they say black cats have trouble getting adopted, right? I think they it's do. because yeah. of these preconceived notions of the black ghostiness. When the truth the is, scary... we all know that all cats can see ghosts. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There's so much time whiplash in this book. Mm-hmm. Because then we move on to ETA and we're back getting questions a- answered that we asked about the tennis match that Hal almost lost to Stice, to the darkness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It took me a few minutes to realize that we were back before the last 
thing that we read at ETA, mm, which was in yeah. the dining hall with the, are they really, the, the conspiracy theory about the powdered milk and the, all of that. So that happened after this. Yeah. And we learned why it mattered which court this match had been played on, that it was on one of the show courts mm -hmm. uh, where there are bleachers so people can come and watch. Mm -hmm. And Helen Steeply is there. Yeah. Good old Helen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, explains why she was in the dining hall for dinner, because right. she right. spent the afternoon there. Mm -hmm. This whole thing was rather amusing to me. <laughs> Delint. <laughs> Delint made me kind of laugh about the way he was handling Helen. Oh my God, so condescending. Mm. Yes. <laughs> But also, like, babe, she kept pushing about when is she going to get to talk to Hal, right? When's she mm -hmm. going to interview him? And he's like, you have to talk to Tavis about that. You have to talk to CT about that. I have no, I have no power to make that happen. I don't think it's going to happen. And she keeps pushing and pushing. And he just... There were some places where I was like, Delint, you're saying some good and beautiful things. And then he goes and calls Helen, babe. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm done with you now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's about it. <laughs> Although, Helen, I don't know what to make of her. People have such different takes on her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Oren describes her as this really sort of enchanting person. And in this section, it mentions that cathected, there's a vocabulary word, cathected. Something about Oren and Helen Steeply and Cathected, which is something about invested emotional energy. Mm -hmm. uh, the, Oren has invested emotional energy in Helen Steeply. Also interesting that she's even, DeLint mentions that it's really fairly amazing that she's gotten in the gates and that he says that he wouldn't have even let her in, mm -hmm. into the campus. She wouldn't have gotten in the gate let alone interview one of the students. And it says that he is supposed to be keeping an eye on her. He's supposed to basically not let her out of his sight. So why did they let, why did CT let her in? Well, because he's basically a politician. Yeah. He is, but, I think, I think but that... doesn't DeLint say that nobody else has gotten in? No other, like, journalist has ever been allowed to come in. But she's not, mm. Steeply isn't just a journalist. Steeply is a Quebecois political operative. <laughs> well, right. So does CT know this about her? Do we assume that he must know this? I, I, I'm skeptical of that. I think that CT thinks that she's yeah. a journalist. I don't know. I, yeah, but, I, I, yeah. I, I, I assume think the CT so. is deeply enmeshed in Quebecois separatist politics. Hmm. That, oh, could well, be, yeah. that could explain I mean, why she gets in. Because Delint doesn't Delint talk about, he lists other publications and, you know, nobody gets in. Yeah. They don't want stuff to come out printed in magazines about right. ETA. In fact, that's one of the things that I actually, that I like about ETA. There's so much about it that I think is so horrifying <laughs> as a school, as mm -hmm. a place for young people. But I really found myself admiring that whole idea that these are kids, some of them are going to go on to be professional tennis players, and they're going to get all that media glory, and people are going to be writing about them, and that's going to become the thing. People who care about the celebrities involved, but don't actually care about the sport itself, mm -hmm. they talk about that. And then they talk about ETA being this like haven. This place where these young people 
can focus totally on learning the game and doing it because of the game and not getting distracted by the media hype and hoopla and the that they're really in a very protected little bubble. I mean, you could say, well, it's just like a high school athlete or college athletes now that they talk about how they're not given the opportunity to benefit financially from advertising deals and things, mm-hmm. and they're being deprived of their ability to cash in, if you will, on their skills. But the, the reasoning behind this seems really like purely it's for these young athletes, for their development. Although perhaps that's too, maybe that's wrong. Maybe it's just another way of abusing them because nobody can write about how, what life is like at ETA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. maybe it's just to keep all the abusive training practices <laughs> quiet, hushed up. I don't mm-hmm. know. That just occurred to me. And maybe I still don't like ETA. <laughs> There's also, though, the end note about CT just had the meeting with parents whose children were seriously injured in the Escaton debacle. <laughs> mm-hmm. They call him Houdini with the manacles of fact. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Smoothing mm-hmm. over Escaton. The Escaton mess with parents so that by the time they leave, so they're there demanding, you know, what went wrong? I mean, you can just imagine what parents would be saying and demanding and threatening to sue the school. Mm -hmm. They don't say that, but one would assume that that's how they come in. And by the time they leave, they're like in tears, like with gratefulness to CT. Ah, yes. (laughs) Like he totally. I will now donate. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. So he's a master of. PR and manipulating people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's this master manipulator. So why did he allow Helen Steeply in? What's going on? What's his reason for that? He must have a reason for yeah, letting he her in. Well, one of the things we find out here is that the mysterious green car from Escaton was right. Steeply's car. Right. So my right. guess is that one, Steeply was probably just parked outside of ETA for a long, long time. Oh, right. Really? So, yeah, Steeply uh, was there right. at the Escaton debacle. Es- at the Escaton yeah. thing. Oh, yeah, that's so right. Tavis probably decides that, you know, this is the only way to keep her from either writing about Escaton or... When yeah, was the, deba- the Escaton thing? Was it the 7th? I feel like it wasn't that long ago. Do we have it on our timeline? You would like to think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, <laughs> because the timeline would... is my neglected little child. Let me. I uh, left let it me in the car on a hot summer day. Because that's interesting, the thought of her car being there for so long. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just yesterday. It wasn't the 10th. No, because right. they had already they brought the kids it was, back It was the 8th. The... It was the 8th. The eight. Okay, so it's been three days. Yeah. Three days. Did she, she just sit there? in her car until she was allowed in? Do you think? I thought that there wasn't was some mention in? of. I thought she was in. Wasn't she? Wasn't she in a parking lot? In at ETA? No, she Isn't was, that where out, the car was outside the fence. Outside I think. the gate. Oh. There's an opinion. There's an opinion. I thought there was some mention of her coming before the Escaton stuff happened. Like they had already arranged it before that. They were talking about it. But that also seems weird. I mean, it seems weird that she would be around that long 
considering that they don't usually let any journalist in. And here she is yeah. hovering about. Well, that's why I think she was outside know. the gate. Like she was okay. doing some recon before actually showing I'm up. Gonna look, I'm going to look for that, but not right now. Yeah, but I'm, I'm pretty sure she was outside <laughs> the gate. My other guess is that even if, because I don't think Tavis knows that Steeply is an undercover OSUS agent, but I believe that the OSUS helped Steeply get this interview or get into ETA. Yeah. Just by pulling strings and things like that. Yeah, maybe they have some kind of leverage against CT. Yeah. The, the weird thing about this, too, so it's there's this long description of the match, right? And talking about the tennis players and everything. Mm-hmm. I thought, too, that it there's a certain weight given this moment in time because they're describing the tennis match. But then they also there's a place where it describes like what others are doing at mm-hmm. this moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Like John yeah. Gately is sleeping. Stice and Pemulus, not Stice. Who is uh, it? Somebody struck. In, struck and Pemulus are at the library at BU, School of Pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And Avril is who knows where. No one knows where she is. And yeah. Oren is with the Swiss hand model again in Phoenix. <laughs> and there's little boys in the tunnel down under the show court. That listing of where people are in the moment yeah. makes it feel like, is there something really, really important about this moment that I'm missing. Because <laughs> I mean, it's like an important moment for Hal's psyche, because this is the first Maybe. game that he plays after going cold turkey. I thought, though, the description of the match itself, he seems so not concerned. I mean, he seems like he's playing hard, but he doesn't seem like he's... Like there are things riding on it. Right. Right. I mean, there aren't because it's an inter-school. Yeah, it's just right. a practice match. Like a match. training match. In fact, does, mm-hmm. is it Steeply that says that they seem like friends more than opponents? Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And Delint says, well, they're, they are friends, but they are, they're very competitive. They want to win. But then she says again, yeah, but they seem more like friends. Mm-hmm. Is that true, or did I make that up? No, you're right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Is there a ghost here, too? Did I... Wasn't there's there something... so much a ghost, but there's kind <laughs> of a callback to the billowing shape um, in the transom, and the shadow of the transom mm. kind of go oh, across right. the courts and kind of... And so maybe that's parts the ghost. The and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that the ghost was ETA all along. Yeah, I thought that something was hanging over the darkness. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In addition well, to the shenanigans at the net. Yeah, there's something hanging over the character of the darkness, and that's the shadow of the transom, but there's also something... Gotcha. Like, I feel like the character of the darkness feels uh, something within the darkness, the concept, as well. Right. Because mm-hmm. he's the one with the moving bed. Right, yes, yeah. he's having right. problems with objects. Right. Mm-hmm. There are little random things, too, like that you wonder if there's any significance. Like Steeply, Helen Steeply notes that Hal doesn't look like Oren. Mm. Like they don't resemble mm. each other. Mm-hmm. She also says or thinks or mutters or something that it was unlikely that any one game figured much in the entertainment. Right. I, I wonder oh, what yeah. she yeah. meant by that. I, that was I, on page 658. She's... Trying to puzzle out, I guess. Whether tennis 
is related to the entertainment or or football or (laughs) is there right is there a sports element to the entertainment Mm -hmm. because she makes also a big point about how these kids if they go on to the show that they will be entertainers yeah Mm -hmm. that they will be they will be entertainers and that's when he says yeah but here at eta this this place is about seeing not about being seen and that they will become objects of entertainment if they go to the pros but that here they they also be be teaching them how to cope with that too then right yeah Mm -hmm. Oh, Steeply says that, right, that they should teach them how to, by letting them practice, I guess. Although that's very insidious. That sounds like a sneaky way to get in there. Yeah, very self-serving. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had another question. There's the mention of the Swiss hand model, and then at some other point, there's a mention of Luria P., and I wondered if she is the hand model. I feel like that's a very good question, and I feel like I had the same thought a couple weeks ago and I looked it up and we determined that it wasn't possible, but I can't remember how we came to that Why? conclusion. Cause it seems, yeah. it seems credible, right? That this would be the, the Swiss hand model would be Luria P. I don't know. I feel like I need to do some more research now and figure that out. Right. Cause the Swiss hand well, model is definitely oh, yeah. involved in espionage with her little purse, with the oxygen canister and her little pistol. It seems likely. That she is involved somehow in yeah. all of the... And Luria P. is still a very mysterious figure to me. Right. She keeps yeah, coming really, up. Yeah, she like keeps a key, coming up, but we don't know. A key figure that we don't yeah. really know about. We know that she's... Uh, what's the guy's name who's the head of the unspecified services? Tyne. Tyne. Rodney Tyne. Tyne. Rodney Tyne. The, the, so, yes. so she's been been having an affair with Rodney Tyne, and he's like infatuated with her and it oh, seems that, that. That, that a lot of the intricacies of reconfiguration were her idea that Tyne then presented to mm-hmm. Gentle. Oh. Mm-hmm. So she's the puppeteer. Right. Which uh, we, t- <laughs> we, we talked about as being odd because she is from Quebec and is ostensibly a Quebecois separatist. So why would she be pushing for reconfiguration of Onan. Right. Mm. Which seems to to run Mm. counter to the political priorities of Quebec. Well, what about Mm. destabilizing Onan from the very beginning? I I mean, yeah, maybe. I don't know. This is on a completely different note. But when when Delint keeps telling Steeply that the only way she's going to find out whether she'll be allowed to interview Hal is to talk to CT, and she says that she did. She spent more than two hours with him, and, and she, she said, <laughs> I really couldn't tell what he was telling me. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, he says you, yeah. Can, you can back him into a corner where you can finally say, I need a yes or a no. It takes about 20 minutes if you're sharp. He's like a a master of the runaround. Mm -hmm. So many questions and so few answers. And then this section ends, let's not forget. The soft profiler looked around at the scalps and knees in the stands, the bags of gear, and a couple incongruous cans of furniture polish. Carved out of what, though, this place? Carved out of what, though, this place? I'm just going to do a quick search here and see if I can find the word carved elsewhere in the book. 
I would like you to know that when I read that this morning, I thought to myself, was ETA built on garbage? Did I make Mm. that up? Uh, Am I thinking about the park in Brookings? It is on a hill. Maybe it's on a pile (laughs) of crap. Yeah, I don't think think it was carved out of garbage. Well, okay, so... Yeah, it was carved out of the hill, though. The word carved only appears seven times in the book. This carved out of what, though, is the fifth time? The first time it's describing the courts at ETA, it says the courts have been carved out of a kind of pit dug long ago. Second time, he can stand happily here for hours, leaning on the sturdy broom he'd carved from a snow... Oh, that's the Antitois brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the, the unfortunate Antitois brothers. Yeah. Old houses uh, are carved up inside into apartments for, like, alienated BU students. Mm-hmm. You're coming into a little slice of space and or time that's been that's carved what? out to protect talented kids from exactly... That's, that's oh, immediately okay. preceding so, so, Okay, so that's yeah. her question then, is, is what right. has the time been carved out of? Right. Mm. You're coming into a little slice of space and or time that's been carved out to protect talented kids. Yeah, so I guess her question is like, what are, what, what are the secrets that she's not getting to see? Carved of out this of place. what, yeah. though? What would be happening right now if she weren't here? Yeah. Also, uh, a little bit before that, though, on the same page, they're talking about John Wayne, and they uh, explain him as having a more dramatic story, geopolitics, privation, exile, drama. Right. Uh, which, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I put a question mark next to, because... Has John Wayne been exiled from we know, Canada? We know Do there's we know some. That? We know there's some drama thought, about like he can't use the Canadian flag on his competition uniform. Yeah, I thought there was something about not being able to go back. Right to Canada, but we don't really know why. We, we right? don't was really it know James why o that that scooped him up and got him to ETA. Is that right, or was it yes. CT? It was. It was it James was, O. James O. Uh, discovered him, and yeah, I assume that it has something to do with like the rival Canadian tennis versus American tennis factions that they think rightfully he should be competing for them. Um, that could mm-hmm. be, as opposed to was, against them. He was stolen from right. them. Right. Which becomes yeah. particularly important if he's like the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There was a lot of bouncing about in this chunk that we read. Mm-hmm. I feel a little slightly disoriented and Yeah, that date shift. Uh, I, I didn't even this think about time this shift being at ETA earlier. I thought it was interesting because when we first learned about this match, this tight match, people were apparently like really stunned and Stice almost beating Hal. He only almost beat him, right? Right. Yeah, he almost beat him. And that Hal seems not horribly upset or embarrassed or anything. And then we go back and see the actual match and why it's giving all these, this detailed description of the match, but it hasn't gotten to the point where Hal actually puts it away and wins, right? Like, we don't know right. what happened. Right. Right. Did the ghost intervene? <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Why did he win? Why didn't he win? What? <laughs> Why didn't <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned ghosts in this context, too, because there's, going back to that kind of montage section where we're looking at different people all at this time, it feels right. like we're... We we have this moment of like omniscient narration 
in the middle of the right. rest of the narration seems to be told strictly from Steeply's perspective. So it's almost like in that few paragraphs, we're getting like a ghost's eye view of what's happening at ETA. <laughs> right. Right. Mm -hmm. Except that the ghost doesn't know where Avril is. Right. Maybe That's, the ghost no doesn't care. Yeah. Mm. Where is Avril? I don't but know. But maybe the ghost doesn't care. Maybe the ghost doesn't care. It's possible. Between the conversation between Steeply and Delint, there's a lot of lack of communication, mm -hmm. which is kind of just this ongoing motif throughout the book. Right. Yeah, like one person says something and then the other says something that doesn't make any sense. Like, does he wear does he wear eyeliner, do you think? Or eye makeup right. or something? Yeah. They're not really paying attention to each other. <laughs> right. But you have to, in fairness, you have to imagine that Delint is really annoyed that he's in this position of babysitting this reporter, this mm -hmm. journalist, mm -hmm. who in his mind shouldn't even be allowed to be there because they don't yeah. allow journalists in. And there he is. Uh, there he is. On 661, there's the paragraph where Delint's explaining it's about the statue and basically you, whether or not you mean to, babe, you chew them up, it's what you do. Right. And uh, that reminded me of they can kill you, but they cannot eat you. Mm. 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 And so we're talking about chewing, but we're not necessarily talking about gaining sustenance from those <laughs> yeah. statues right. that apparently journalists chew. He also says that the crowds in Italy literally chew statues. Right. Huh. Right. Yes, literally. <laughs> that sounds what really unpleasant. Like that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and just a little tidbit that is way, way, way belated. But I realized that the last time that we read the word billow before the day the billowing Dompert shape section before the billowing shape was in the description of a piece of the entertainment uh, where right. Joelle in the revolving door uh, catches oh, sight of someone that makes her veil billow. Uh, 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 so just uh, word usage. Uh, interesting. Uh, <laughs> it's a good word. Yes. How many times does it appear in Infinite Jest, Andrew Gingrich? I will find that out for you. It appears 30 times. Nice. Oh, wow. So that, that brings us to the end of our reading. We should uh, pick, a, pick a page target for our next session. I'm thinking to page 673. I like okay. it. Okay. That'll be our 30th episode. Wow. Oh. Could I just say that I have heard rumors that someone else has been listening to our podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. Is it David Foster Wallace from Beyond the Grave? Oh, that would be <laughs> nice. But no. Yeah. No, it's my friend Kelly's daughter, Cassie, who oh. Jonathan maybe knows, Cassie. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, yeah. the stories that you told about how you came to be reading Infinite Jest, both Jonathan and Andrew, and I mean, my story is the same. I was handed the book and told that I should read it, and I put it aside, <laughs> and then I actually tried to read it, and then I said, I can't read this, and then a lot of time elapsed, and then someone said, hey, do you want to do a podcast? reading Infinite Jest. And, and you had I no said, excuses huh, left. No. You were retired. Said, oh, it was I'm a retired. pandemic. I'm retired. Exactly. <laughs> 
And so I did that. And so now I'm reading it. And Cassie is apparently reading it because Kelly uh, knew that I was reading it. And (laughs) Kelly hasn't said that she will read it, but she said she thought that sounds like a book that Cassie would read. And now Mm. apparently Cassie is reading it. And she apparently has started your podcast and she thinks that we're clever. Oh, well. Oh, so Welcome Cassie, if you're listening, if you're still Cassie. listening Cassie. at episode 29, it's, you know. If you're still totally listening, I, I admire your fortitude. To words. I admire yeah. your fortitude in reading Infinite Jest this far and in listening to the podcast this far. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. a lot yeah. of listening. Does anyone have anything they would like to promote or say to anyone who might be listening to this right now? I have a website. It's briannacratz.com. Excellent. I'm still old and still have no website. So, mm-hmm. if you know, you can send me a letter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do not have a website, but I do have an Instagram. It's CardboardVV, and you can check out my paintings there. Very good. Um, my website is agingrick.com, and I'm on Instagram at coffeestopfix. Jonathan, is there anything that you would like to promote to our five listeners? Uh, yeah, even abstract concepts. Yeah, we take abstract <laughs> concepts. Uh, if you if you want to uh, read analytic philosophy, my website is jonathangingrich.net. Uh, <laughs> if you don't, it All probably right. won't be of much use to you. Uh, <laughs> and thank, thank you for having me on today. Yeah. It's been it was, really ha- it was really fun to have another voice mm-hmm. in the conversation. Another jester? No. Yeah. Oh. I'm hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My advice to people is to bake cookies. By the oh, time that's you good do advice. this, it won't be Christmas cookie time, but every time is a good cookie every time, is time cookie as time. it turns out. What? And I don't usually do it. But mm. as I've been baking cookies, I've been thinking that it's a good thing to do. Excellent. Uh, Just a few other things. We have an email address. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us, you can email smallcleverpod at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page. We're on Instagram and Twitter, all at smallcleverpod. Uh, There's not much there yet, but maybe by the time you listen to this, there will be more. Next time, we'll be talking about pages 663 to 673. Our music is by Jonathan Rigby. You can listen to his podcast, The Land of Random, on Spotify. Thanks for listening, and surely you are not meaning your sister was a goat. How about the South Dakotaan? Dakotaans? Dakotans? South Dakotans? What do you call someone who lives in South Dakota? Sad. <laughs> <laughs>